We have two passages this morning. The first is from Mark chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. It says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The second passage is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The problem with teaching just from Mark on this passage is there's only two verses on the temptation of Jesus. And one of the things that we said last week was that Mark uses an economy of words, and that's really wonderful in many respects. But sometimes I wish there was more. And so enter Matthew. And so, but here's what's fascinating. Remember, in the first two weeks, I've been saying that. Mark is really emphasizing the idea of wilderness. Remember? That wilderness. Mark talk, in fact, one of the things you'll notice here is that in just two verses right there, verses 12 and 13, Mark mentions the wilderness three times, wild or wilderness. And in 12 verses from Matthew, we get it one time. Clearly, Mark is focusing on something. And part of, remember what we said in starting this new long series of which we've not done one like this in 11 years, going through a whole gospel like this verse by verse. But part of the reason why I chose Mark was because of the theme of wilderness. And right here in the prologue that we talked about the last couple of weeks and now as we begin the public ministry of Jesus, we see that uh, really emerge all over again. That his story is a wilderness story. And what we've been saying all along, remember, is that we read this story in two ways. One, we read the story of Jesus, but then as a result of that, we read our story. We begin to see that, my gosh, like what Jesus goes through, yes, I mean, the, the actual literal phys physical crucifixion, probably not something that we're going to experience, but yet everything that he went through, we go through. And so what we want to see this morning is, what does it mean to go through temptation? Or testing, as we're going to say. What does it mean to go through that in a way that allows us to come out on the other side feeling strengthened and able to enjoy God for who he is? So this morning, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to see the test. 
the actual test that, that Jesus goes through. Second, we're going to look at his response. We're going to try to understand why does he respond the way he does each time to the temptation from the evil one. And then finally, we're going to talk about really, really lowering the boom in terms of what does that mean for us, embracing the reason for why Jesus responds the way he does. So first here, it is to see the test. I want us to look back at the Mark passage, just the verse, two verses there, which is the whole passage this time from Mark, verses 12, and really the first part of verse 13. It says this, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. All right, what's going on here? I want you to see a few things before we actually talk about the three temptations. Really important here. Notice this. We began, actually, with verse 11, the baptism. So Jesus is baptized, and, and there's no time to, to celebrate. There's no time like an inauguration where there's some parties or there's a honeymoon period. Nothing like that. It says in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus further into the wilderness. That's really important. Here's why. I think that when you first come to faith, and for some of you, that's been your story. You recently came to faith, knowing your stories. And, or perhaps, uh, you know, you've been a follower for a long period of time, but there's a sense of renewal that's happening in your life. One thing that it's really important for us to see is that when you go deeper into life with Christ, you go deeper into spiritual conflict as well. And, and what's, what's fascinating here is that Jesus, who was perfect, Jesus, who who just heard these words, you are my son in whom I am well pleased, immediately is thrust into conflict. I think sometimes there is a temptation, pun intended. I think there's sometimes a temptation to think that, man, if I just live a good life, if if I parent well, if, if I do well in my workplace, I can avoid conflict. Now, we may not consciously say that. I mean, we catch ourselves and we say, no, I don't really uh, know. But that's sometimes how we live our lives. And I want you to see right here the story of Jesus. That the very first thing that happens to Jesus is that he's thrust into the most torturous temptation, the most torturous conflict of his life prior to the crucifixion. And and we see this through these three different uh, temptations that we're going to look at here. But uh, the other thing I want you to see it's not just the story of temptation. It's also the fact that temptation and testing are not exactly the same thing. One of the things that we see in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 13, the half-brother of Jesus, he says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So, wait a minute. The Spirit just drove Jesus out into the wilderness or deeper into the wilderness where the evil one meets him with temptation. What is that? There's a difference between testing and temptation. The evil one does the temptation. What does that mean? His desire with Jesus was to throw Jesus off his plan, off his mission, to thwart him, to distract him from God's mission in his life. But testing is not exactly the same thing. Testing is this. It's sort of like this, uh, I look around and I see my own kids, I see some other people. In fact, some of you are not just kids, you're adults, and you're also in school. And, and when you are in school, you get examined. Now, why do you get examined? Because you're being tested for what you know. You're being, being examined that, that what you say that you believe or what you say that you know, do you actually know it? Now, the temptation when you're being examined is to cheat. That's the temptation. But the professor who put the exam together, he didn't lead you to decide to cheat. 
That was your choice. You're being tested, but there's also temptation. You see the difference there. God sends Jesus to be tested, to test his character. Now, the Father knows how this is going to turn out. More on that here in a second. But I want you to see the difference there. Here's the last thing I want you to see before we actually look at the temptations. One of the things that we like to say as Christians is that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. Ever heard that before? Yes, we all do. We, and I hope that you believe it, right? That God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you know what? He's not the only one that has a plan for your life. We often are, are, and rightfully so, we ask the question, what does God want for my life? But when was the last time you stopped and asked this question, what does Satan want for my life? You see, what we see here are the devil's desires. It's the desires of the evil one that he has a mission. And he wants you on his mission, which is a sort of self-mission of project self, as we're going to see. And it's fascinating when you look at another place in John, 1 John 2.16, it says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's this trifold, this threefold pattern here. Again, the desire of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life. It's actually playing itself out here. Those three things in these three temptations. All of these are alternatives to making God a priority in our lives. So let's look here. What are the three temptations as we look at the test? Here's the first one, appetite. The first temptation there in verses 2 and 3 is to lean into our appetites, or another way to put that is to avoid pain and suffering. Look at verses 2 and 3. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus isn't just in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness after 40 days without food. Now, we know this today, that from medical science tells us that 40 days is as long as you can go before you actually entail permanent damage on the body. And so Jesus is pushing the envelope here. Jesus is at the brink of permanent damage. But at the same time, what he's doing is he's saying, look, I will not depend upon food out here in the desert a place where there is no food, the place where there, there is no life, as it were. Remember what we talked about last week about life in the wilderness. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's at a, a place of utter weakness. And at the place of utter weakness is when the evil one comes and says this, Jesus, it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, really, if you are the Son of God, think about what you could do for your life right now. You could choose a different pathway. You see all these stones that are baking in the heat of the desert? You could bake bread. They're baking in the heat, but you could bake bread. And you could take care of yourself. You have great job. 40 days. But now it's time to end it. So the first thing I want you to see here is this temptation to avoid the wilderness altogether and what the wilderness stands for. And that is hunger and weakness. We talked about that last week as well. That the desert, the wilderness, is a place that symbolically represents weakness. A sense of, of lostness, of dis, desol, uh, excuse me, dislocation and desolation. And right here in this passage, we see this picture that we are made for comfort, the evil one says. And that's what your life is for. I think that really connects with us. 
when it comes to appetite. By the way, I don't mean just appetite in terms of food and drink, but also sex and achievement and beauty and so many other things. Anything, and here's what appetite means. Appetite is that which we passionately want at all costs. That's what it means by appetite. Appetite is that thing that says that this is what you're made for. And if you just had more of this, you'd be okay. Kirsten is here this morning, and she could raise her hand and testify that that when it comes to food and the Armstrongs, she knows something about the power of food in our lives. And so she's watched over 22 years of marriage that when I, I go without a meal, even just a couple hours, I become hangry. You know what I'm, I'm talking about? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, that wasn't as much her side of the family, but my side of the family, like my oldest, Karis, she is just like me. I mean, if she goes without a meal, Kirsten can skip a meal, and, and she's perfectly fine. Like, I can't do that. I can't even go an hour without having belly, food in my belly here. And, and there's this picture that, that I don't like to be in discomfort. And as soon as I'm without food, I feel it throughout my whole soul to the point that it affects my character. I become angry, hangry, right? And here's this picture of Jesus, 40 days of weakness, 40 days without food. And he's saying, I'm willing to be in a place of discomfort. I want to say this to us as Christians, for those of you who are Christians here this morning. I heard it said recently, here's the definition of Christianity. It's to bring comfort to the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. There's something in that for us. That if we are not in a position and in a place where we can be, pun intended, comfortable with being uncomfortable, there's something that we're missing. Why? Because it's in the wilderness where we primarily grow as Christians. It's primarily in that place of spiritual formation. It's when you're going through hell in your life, relationally, in your relationships, in your marriage, in, in your physical body, through disease, through depression, what Mike's going to be talking about with our young people in just a few weeks, anxiety, stress. It's in these places where we need to hear the voice of God more than anywhere else. What we talked about last week, that it's in the wilderness that we hear the voice of God more clearly than anywhere else. And yet, what do we want? We want to escape pain We want to escape the wilderness. And I'm here to tell you that the voice of God is there speaking to you in the wilderness. And he has something for you to say. And he wants to say something to you, to your appetite. And I think what it really shows us is is that temptation is to indulge ourselves at the cost of missing his voice. A number of years ago when I was in seminary, there was a woman there who was on staff at a church here in Atlanta. I won't name the church, but it was a church that was very orthodox in what it believed, but it was also very uh, influential and very wealthy. And she said that in the youth group, she was a youth pastor, in the youth group, uh, routinely the, the kids would come in driving BMWs and Mercedes. I mean, it wasn't just like upper middle class wealth. That's not what I mean. I'm talking like uber wealth here. And so all the kids had everything imaginable. She talked about all the toys and gadgets that all the kids had, and including the rides. And she said, we struggled with issues regarding uh, sexual brokenness, drugs, and alcohol in a way that I've never seen before. And she'd been in ministry in other places as well. She said, she said in part it was because these kids had everything, and yet they, had, they lacked the one thing that they truly wanted and what they truly needed. And that was attachment with their parents, she said. She said these kids would come in, they were utterly alone and isolated because their parents were constantly working 
And they brought in so much wealth. But as a result of that, the kids felt numb to their own deepest desires. And so they sought through appetite. They sought through other ways, right? The priority of the self. And she said the paradox was that the more they tried to avoid pain, the more pain was increased. I think that's so true. And that's the temptation that Jesus faces here. But I think it sets up to understand the second temptation here. The first one's to avoid pain, appetite. The second one's approval, avoid worthlessness. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me now. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So imagine this. Jesus is in the wilderness, and right surrounding the wilderness, of course, is Jerusalem, this city in the desert. And so Satan points to the temple. Now, the temple in the ancient days was their skyscraper. There was nothing larger than the temple. There was nothing higher than the temple. And what does Satan say? Satan says, look, look, it doesn't have to be this way. You're being humiliated. You're signing yourself up for a journey of humiliation. You could have it all. You could, you could throw yourself down. He's quotes Psalm 11. He twists it, but he quotes Psalm 11 that says, if the Messiah were to throw himself down, the angels would, would save him. And so, Jesus, show everyone who you are. Now, I want you to see this phrase. It happens in the first temptation. It happens in the second one. He says this, if you are the Son of God. I call this living by conjunction. If. Prove yourself. How many of us in here have experienced that as well? I need to demonstrate to other people that I am somebody. If you are somebody you'll do this. Living by, con- by conjunction. One of the things I, I, I've always thought is that no matter what it is that you do for a living, you have a second job. You're a construction worker. You're constantly constructing an identity for yourself. You're constantly constructing an image for yourself, you say. Uh, a couple of years ago, when COVID started, or not long after we first began to reopen, right? There were like three reopenings, remember that? And uh, after the first one, I got together with a cohort of pastors. Some of you will know this, some of you will not. But one of the things that I've been doing the last several years is I've been meeting with pastors as a way to help lead pastors through different issues. And so I put together a cohort of pastors in Atlanta. And one of the pastors that I knew quite well, he invited a new pastor that I'd never met before. And his church was, was still closed. This is just a few months after everything hit the fan. And, and so he came into the cohort that day, and he came in, and he was despondent. At one point, he, he placed his, his, his face in his hands, and with his face in his hands, with his head lowered, he said, I need to get back to the stage. And, and I said, what do you mean, I need to get back to the stage? He says, well, our church was, was growing like a weed. It was exploding in growth, and he was telling me about, about what worship was like and was like to be on this great stage and the, the new growth and everything that was happening. And he began to weep. And he said, I need the stage. Man, I mean, he just confessed something that I think all pastors instinctively want sometimes. And, and that's just me as a pastor knowing that I can be empathetic with him. And I'm sure probably in your industry, whether the one that we prayed for earlier, finance or something else, academics, whatever it might be, you can say there are times when, when I need the stage. There are times in my parenting when I need the stage. 
There have been times, I've shared this before, but there have been times when I, I will go out of my way to ensure that my wife knows what I've done for my children. Anyone been there like that before? Tell me I'm not alone. I see a few brave hands. All right. You know, look, we've all been there before. We're all saying, man, I, I want others to see what I've done for them. This is the need for identity at the cost of integrity. This is what Jesus has offered in the desert. Jesus, at the cost of your integrity, your mission, you could shortcut it. You could take the short route down, throw yourself off from the top of the temple. It's avoiding worthlessness. But here's the last one is ambition. The first is appetite, is to avoid pain. The second one, approval, is to avoid a sense of worthlessness in our life. But finally here, it's ambition, to avoid meaninglessness, the sense that I don't have a purpose. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here's what's intriguing. The first two is nuanced what the evil one is doing. He's sort of hiding his hand, hiding his wild card. But in the third one, he takes the mask off. He says, here's what I really want. Here's what I've wanted all along is I want to be worshipped. And look, here's what I'm telling you, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. Here's what can be exchanged. I'm throwing in the first two offers, the ones you've already turned down. The, the offer of you can slake your appetite. You can have approval. But not only that, isn't the point of your coming, Jesus, isn't this what you've been saying? That the point was to have dominion over the world? I'm telling you, there's another way other than the cross. I'm telling you that there's another way other than suffering. I'm telling you there's another way of, rather than submitting on your knees to the will of your Father. I'm telling you there's, there's another way. It doesn't involve the cross. It doesn't involve torture. It doesn't involve humiliation. But it gets you power. I know that many of you have been listening to the podcast, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. You know, it, it's fascinating as a pastor. When I, when I was listening to this series, I did it during the sabbatical this past summer. When I was listening to the series, man, I, I, there are times when I was saying, I wonder what my people think about me. Right now, I know that they know I'm no Mark Driscoll. I, you know, I didn't have a, we didn't have a church, multiple campuses, and ten thousand people. I know they get that part, but I wonder, like, do, do they wonder, like, do I have this like secret life and like I'm living out this this ambitious power trip dream, something like that? I hope not, uh, because it's not there, by the way. But you know, just suffice to say, um, I wonder what you know they think of the church in general. And I know a lot of people have been hurt by the church. We have one of the questions we ask when people come in for membership is, is what has your, been your journey through church? And have there been what you would call negative experiences? And they exist, and I know that. And we, we long for people not to have that experience here. But when I, when I listened to that series, what I, I saw was ambition. I saw not a holy ambition. By the way, all these things, appetite, approval, ambition, these are all good things. I need to say that very clearly. Temptation is always an aberration of a good thing. God has designed us for holy ambition. He's designed us to have approval. He's designed us to not have weak appetites, but strong ones. But it's just how we shortcut the process to get the true thing, the real thing. And in that series regarding Mars Hill, I saw the same thing. Rabbi Pinchas was a rabbi. He lived centuries ago, and he said this. He said, the world is like a book that can be read in either direction. There is the power of creation to make something from nothing, and there is the power of destruction to make nothing of something. That is always 
the opportunity that is always the decision in, when it comes to ambition. What will we do with the opportunity to have influence? What will we do with the opportunity to have power? Jesus, you can have all that without the suffering. So in light of that, what do we do? I'm going to move a lot faster now. But I want you to see Jesus' response. How do we understand it? Three times with three temptations, Jesus responds in the same way. I'm going to read verses 4, 7, and 10. Right? Jesus, slake your thirst. Make bread. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, it doesn't have to be this way. You can have all the affirmation that you know that you're designed for. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, you know there's, there's another way to have dominion in the world. You don't have to go through suffering. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only shall you serve. What do we learn about the temptations that we, that we face all day long? Here's what I think we learn. What does it mean to be grounded? That's the word. If you hear another word, hear that word. Jesus was grounded. Listen to what he says, John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In the desert, he had food, don't you say? But his food was of a different variety. And what is fascinating is Jesus responds to three temptations with the exact same phrase, it is written. What is he saying there? To be grounded in the word of God itself. And what's fascinating is all three quotations that Jesus quotes here, he quotes Deuteronomy back to the devil. Now, where was Deuteronomy written? Or when does Moses give Deuteronomy to his people? Deuteronomy is, is this commands of God saying, this is how you shall live your life. Where is it happening? In the wilderness. Deuteronomy was given to Israel between their fleeing from Egypt and slavery, but before they get to the promised land. And out there in the desert, they are tempted to question, God, are you good? God, I'm, I'm facing this thing in my life right now. I know that you've said that I should refrain from uh, sexuality before marriage, and yet, yet I don't understand why it is that you would say that in light of how, how good, and everyone else seems to be enjoying it. And, and are you holding back something from me? It would seem so. Are you good? I question whether you're good. I, I, I want to be married, and I'm still single. And I've been asking this over and over and over again. Are you good? Like, do, are, are you for me, or are you against me? Israel was asking the same questions, friends. And so Moses gives them Deuteronomy. He says, remember who your God is. Remember that I'm for you. I'm, and all over and over again, he say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, which was code language. I freed you. I brought you out of slavery. And I've made you for life. And yes, you're being tested. Israel is called son, by the way. Son, you're being tested out here in the wilderness before you arrive at the promised land. And how will you respond? Each time Jesus responds with Deuteronomy, his food for the wilderness. And in verse 10, what does he finally say? I won't worship you. Worship the Lord your God. Almost what he says verbatim in Matthew chapter 22 later on. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know what the word worship means? It actually comes from two words. Worth-ship. It means to declare the worthiness of someone or something. 
And every time we face temptation, whether it seems like a micro temptation or something writ large, even a few of those things I've just shared, regardless, it all has the same flavor. It is to declare who is worthy in my life. Will God be ultimately worthy in my life? Will I trust him even when his commands don't make sense to me in light of where I am in life right now? Like ethically or morally. And, and so, and so I, I want to suggest to you that ultimately at the fundamental core level of this passage is the question, is God good in my life? Behind every temptation, behind every trial and testing is the question, is God good for me? How do I know that he is good for me? And that leads us here to the last thing. And that is to embrace the reason behind how Jesus responds the way he does being grounded in the word. I remember a number of years ago, I remember thinking that primarily what God's word is about is a list of commands in my life. And it's, it's, it's duty for me. I need to just listen to what he says. And even if I don't understand, even if I don't agree with it, it's what I need to do. And, and yes, duty will get you so far. But at some point, you'll begin to ask the question, why do I need to live this way? Duty doesn't give you enough energy to live your life. Something else is needed, and the answer is delight. And the penny dropped for me. I've preached this passage multiple times in 15 years. But something I saw for the very first time, I want to share with you now. And it's what happened right prior to the temptation. Where it says, the Spirit immediately drove him out. What was the verse right before that? Do you remember? It's when... The father says to the son, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It is not a coincidence that as soon as he hears, you are my son whom I delight in. He's brought into the temptation to be tested. You see, the resources that we need is the word of God. But it's specifically these words of God, I think. When we're facing a trial and temptation in our singleness or in our marriage, or in our workplace, in our sexuality, whatever it might be, when we face that, we need to hear those words. You are my son. You are my daughter. In whom I am well pleased. Jesus heard those words, and he was grounded. It allowed him to stay in the wilderness for as long as it took to face whatever it is that he needed to be tested with. Hence, this passage. And here's what we need to see. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Don't you see, there's a reason why it was 40 days. It mirrors the 40 years of Israel. And why was Jesus baptized? He goes through the waters. What happened to Israel? Went through the waters and immediately went into the desert or wilderness after the waters coming out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. Don't you see, Jesus is a pattern as well. He's modeling what Israel should have been, all the different tests that they failed. Jesus succeeds after one test, after another, after another, after another. It is, a, it, is a, um, it is a preparation for the ultimate test. Where in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Yet not my will, but yours. He understood what he was about to undergo. He was excruciating. He understood exactly what was about to happen to him. And yet he said, I want your will, Father, rather than mine. Whatever it takes. Why? For love. I'll close with this. When I was a little kid, I went and saw a movie called The Elephant Man. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that movie before. It came out like 40, 42 years ago. 
so again, this dates just how old I was. All right. But I was a, I was a really small kid, just so you know. So I was like seven or eight or nine years old. And and uh, the Terra Theater just down the street here on Cheshire Bridge, Terra Theater was was hosting some of the more avant-garde movies. And Elephant Man was one of them. And Elephant Man is based on a true story about a man named John Merrick. John Merrick lived in the 19th century in England, and he had a disease called elephantitis. And elephantitis, as the name might suggest, creates incredible disformity, deformity and disfigurement. And John Merrick was disfigured from birth, and as a result, he was abandoned by his parents. And he was then placed in a circus, in a cage, where the people's entertainment was to look upon his disfigured face and mock. John Merrick, in his 20s, in the cage, was rescued by some Christians, some rather enlightened folk um, in 19th century England. And he began uh, friendships with them. There's this one scene in the movie. It's haunting. And uh, even now, I, I think about it. I remember in the theater watching this and bawling my eyes out. Because here's this man who was abused. And he says this, this haunting phrase that I'll never forget. He is, he's enjoying tea. Remember, this is Britain after all. He's, they're enjoying tea together. And he says, oh, if only my mother could see me now with these good friends, then she would love me. And I think for a lot of us in here, that's how we look upon this. Well, Jesus loves me, but but I've got to clean my life up. That's what religion is. That's what all religions have in common. But only Christianity says, in your disfigurement, you are a beloved son. You're a beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Don't you see? I said this in a council appointment with someone in our church just a few weeks ago. Don't you know that in the midst of your disfigurement, in the midst of your temptation where you say, I keep failing this test over and over again, the Father says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And I said, to this one gentleman, I said, don't you know that right now in the midst of your pain and your disfigurement, that's how he sees you, just as he sees his own son. That's the reason, that's the basis for calling you son. That's the reason, that's the basis for calling you daughter. It's in the midst of your disfigurement that he delights in you. You see, duty will never bring you to a place of obedience, but delight will where you are loved deeply by a father in a way that no earthly father ever could or earthly mother. And it creates empathy because Jesus went through everything. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And just like Jesus experienced out in the wilderness, when you are in the fight of your life, with whatever it is the spiritual temptation is, that it might become spiritual formation in your life, he tends to you there in the desert, just as the angels did, ministering to you, to strengthen you, to encourage you. Part of the role of the church is to encourage and to strengthen each other. Part of the reason why we encourage people to say, let down the walls, share, take the mask off. What are the temptations? What are the vulnerabilities? What is the weakness? It's so that we might tend to you in the desert. We might minister to you in the desert, that we might be the hands and feet of Jesus to you, the angels for you in the wilderness. So may we as a church family live like that. And may we bring glory to him in the wilderness as we look to 
not only our model, Jesus Christ, but our Savior and Redeemer who redeemed us in the wilderness for us there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what is a very difficult passage in many ways, a very heavy passage to look at temptation and to ask the fundamental question beneath all questions, are you good? Can we trust you? My hope and prayer is is that we can, in the midst of the wilderness, whatever that is for us right now, trust that you are not only enough for us, but you are abundant life for us. That you are the food in the desert. You are the living water that slakes our thirst, Jesus Christ. I don't know what, what everyone is facing. I don't know everyone's stories this morning, but chances are all of us can say, I can taste the wilderness here. And so in that place of temptation to leave, to avoid pain, to avoid a sense of humiliation or sense of worthlessness or meaninglessness. Father, to hear your voice that says, you're son, you're my daughter, you're affirmed, I approve of you. I give you a true ambition, a true mission for life. I will slake your thirst. I will be your feast. May it be so for City Church Eastside. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now we respond to God's word through confession and